It is an historic occasion whenever Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi confront each other. Their very presence weaves a spell of mystery and horror. Ready for the test, Dracula? I'm ready, Frankenstein. Then let us begin. I am Chris Maverick. You can call me Mav. And as always, I am here with Wayne Wise. Hey, Wayne. Hey, Mav. How are you? I'm doing good. A little hungover, which <laughs> I believe this is the first time that I've done the show this way. So. Okay. <laughs> um, I had, had a party last night, but you weren't there because yeah, somebody decided to go on vacation. I am on vacation, <laughs> but I'm still here doing the podcast, unlike you yeah. when you went on vacation. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I went on vacation and I was drunk on the beach, as someone pointed out on the show. <laughs> but you... But to, to, be, to be fair, we tried and you just didn't have yeah. an internet connection that supported it so yeah so but you are on vacation and where are you at i'm in santa cruz california which is where mike and his his wife Farhana live uh their son zane uh i met them when mike taught at carnegie mellon university back in pittsburgh and oh. just have maintained a friendship and they are gracious enough to let me sleep in their house every couple years. Well, then we'll be introducing him momentarily. So before we do, I mean, spoiler alert, his name's going to be Mike, but. Um, yeah. but what, oh, I blew it. Damn it. <laughs> but what is this show about today? We're going to talk about monsters. 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 Scary monsters and super creeps. Yeah, this is a pop culture show and monsters in media are certainly a thing that, you know, there's been one or two movies about or a couple a thousand, one or two thousand. So. This came about sort of weirdly. We got a suggestion for that, and we we just sort of knew two people. So why don't you introduce the first one since you're there? Yeah, uh, my my friend Dr. Michael Chemers, who teaches University of California in Santa Cruz Theater Department, a dramaturg. You can tell us all about yourself, Mike. Oh, I, you're not going to give me a, a fun, flattering introduction. <laughs> no, no he's, do it he's a beautiful, beautiful man. <laughs> <laughs> for a <Yeah>. monster. <laughs> uh, hello. Uh, <laughs> yes, my name is Michael Chemers. I'm a theater scholar, so I study theater history and dramatic literature and the theory of the theater and also dramaturgy, which is a intellectual pursuit uh, that, that supports the aesthetics of live performance. But uh, we've been reaching out in our field lately into other areas of uh, performance culture, like movies and also video games. So there's a lot of uh, intersection now between dramaturgy and video games and also dance. And my interest in monsters goes back to my childhood, which we're happy to talk about. Uh, but uh, when I was a professor at Carnegie Mellon University there in Pittsburgh, where you guys are located, I innovated a class called the Monster in uh, theater history. It was really a way of teaching theater history that I was hoping would be more interesting for the students. So we just looked at monsters throughout different periods of history in this class. And as I started to put this class together, started to really think about this, I, I really began to see that monsters, uh, when they are performed, and this is true for 
for films and uh, television shows and video games as well. They obey rules that are different than other characters, uh, other mythic characters, heroes and wizards and whatever. But they, they have very special characteristics. And I thought that there's a way to map the fears and anxieties of a particular culture and also their hopes and dreams through the monsters that they create. And so that's where the premise for my book comes from. And just as a, a footnote, I, I met Michael through the comic shop, Phantom the Attic, where he came to buy comics because he's also a bit of a comics geek and even more so a role-playing gaming geek. So, Oh, you outed me? Yeah, well, come on. On a national... <laughs> yes, on a national podcast, podcast because no one knows this about you. <laughs> Ones or twos of listeners might hear <laughs> tens, tens or twenties of people now know that you play Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> Mom, if you're listening, uh, it's, it was just a phase. No, I'm a fanatic. Yeah. I'm a D&D fanatic and... Um, <laughs> Yes, absolutely. But yeah. And, you know, aren't I lucky? Uh, people like uh, Professor Duda and I are very lucky that we are able to turn our love for these kinds of pop culture things into an actual career. Dream of an actual career. One day. And, 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 and there's a nice segue, Mav. <laughs> uh, well, Introduce that's our, our other guest. That's our other guest, Heather Duda, who is also a professor. I have not actually met her in person. I know her or know of her through friend of the show who's been on, Matt Usia, who is a colleague of mine, formerly of hers. And Heather, what's your interest here? Well, mine is much the same as Mike's in a way. I always loved a good scary story. Even when I was little, I was the kid who wanted to hear the ghost story, whether it was around a campfire or just hang out. Some of my most fondest books as a child were those scary, uh, scary stories to tell in the dark series. I love those. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. At one point, I think my mom got tired of how often I was taking them out of the library. And so my parents just bought me my own set. It was it was pretty awesome. And then I encountered my first scary movie was actually Stephen King's It, the miniseries from the 80s, not the newest film, mm. of course. With Jack Tripper. Um, yes, Jack Tripper. <laughs> uh, yes, I know his real name. His real name is Hooperman. Uh, deep cut that no one's going to get. I just really had both this love of being scared, but also this sort of detachment to know that there was something else going on. So not only did I like the scare, I kind of was like, oh, there's something here. Why do I like the scare? And, um, and just over the years, had the pleasure of further studying monsters, discovered gothic monsters in college, fell in love with Frankenstein and to some extent Jane Eyre, which which sort of romantic monster kind of a thing. But uh, <laughs> I had the pleasure of working on a dissertation with someone, Dr. Tom Slater, who was willing to let me work with Buffy. I had no idea what I was going to do with Buffy, but I was a huge fan from the moment it premiered in 1997 and didn't have any idea what to do and went to the movies while I was working on my comprehensive exams, trying to figure out what I was going to write about. And there happened to be a movie poster for the not so wonderful Van Helsing. Which It is such a pretty movie. Everyone's very good looking. It is. Uh, Hugh Jackman has some very good hair in it. Yes. Um, yes. I, 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 I a lot of monsters in it. Yes. And so uh, I I will say this, I think Richard Roxborough, Roxborough, maybe one of my favorite Dracula's though, but I thought I'm reading all this stuff about the monsters. How come nobody ever writes about Van Helsing? And so that really started me looking not as much at the monster as at the monster hunter. And so I've been really fascinated with 
the monsters who fight their peers, they're, they're mm-hmm. the monsters. And, and that evolution from sort of the white, upper middle class, highly educated man who's upholding the status quo to sort of your Buffy, Angel, Spike, Blade, um, Severus Snape from Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. So that's my trajectory. Well, and that's sort of how this particular show came about. Wayne had spoken to me about having Mike on way, way, way back when we first started the show and we didn't know what we were going to do yet. And then when Matt was on the show a few weeks ago, after we recorded, he said, a friend of mine wrote a book that you'd really like and you should think about asking her to be on the show. So I read the book and it's called Monster Hunters. And we thought, oh, okay, well, if, if Mike wrote a book on monsters and Heather wrote a book on monster hunters, well, that's just an episode. We can just right there. That's, that's all we needed in order to sort of get a concept going. So that's sort of what we're going to talk about today. A podcast cage match, monster mash. <laughs> well, I'm, I can tell you, I'm really happy to be here to be on the show with you guys and particularly with Professor Duda. Can I call you Heather? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I've just been acquainting myself with uh, Heather's work and there's a point that she makes that I think I would really like to talk about, uh, and maybe this can launch our discussion, that Heather, you make the point that monster hunters, they may go into monster hunting uh, out of a sense of, you know, defending the weak or avenging somebody or, you know, all the various pure motives that we attribute to heroes. But sooner or later, they become infected in some way and start to transform at least partially into monsters themselves, which actually increases their effectiveness as monster hunters. Mm-hmm. This is something that I've also thought a lot about. So I'd like to talk about that aspect of your work. Sure. I was most interested with what I call the monstrous monster hunter. This is the, the sort of monster that are driven to hunting the monsters because of various reasons, usually redemptive in nature, although at some point in their path, they recognize that they will never be redeemed for their monstrous actions, or at least that's their perception. So they just do the best they can. And yeah, it it kind of, one of the um, sort of central ideas of my work is, is Nietzsche's, uh, when you look too long into the abyss, the abyss looks back at you. Oh yeah. And I think this is something that, that certainly comes up if you know the Watchmen text. I I know that's some of them. one of the elements in that. And I just think that in today's culture, it was when Dracula was written, the idea was to not be infected. It was that you could only fight if you had that purity. Although, as I argue in my work, Nina Harker becomes the most effective of the monster hunters, partly because of the impurity of being infiltrated by Dracula. And so, but over time, over the 20th century and 21st century, now it's, if you don't have some element of that abyss, if you don't have some element of monstrosity to you, either inherently already or develops, then you are completely ineffective. Because if you don't know the monster you're fighting intimately, you can't effectively fight that monster. You can't be that sort of educated, outside, monstrosity, pure figure anymore. And I just find that to be really fascinating because I think, Mike, if I can call you Mike, um, that you mentioned it earlier when you were talking about sort of the monster, that um, monsters reflect us. And what does that say about us as a society that we feel as we move forward into the 21st century that our best and brightest that are here to protect us have to be a little bit monstrous themselves? Yes. I think this also is a wonderful way of digging further into your point about how monster hunters used to be exclusively educated white men. Mm-hmm. Um, and now they are, now we're seeing a, a much greater diversity in our monster hunters. When does that start? Cause I'm wondering, so to me, the oldest monster hunter I can think of 
in literature, probably Beowulf. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much his entire role. But he's more, I mean, education is not really part of his origin. It's Oh, actually, Chris, yeah. I mean, to the point about Beowulf, there, monster hunters go back as far as as, as mythology. Uh, the earliest... Uh, well, cave painting walls, absolutely, sure. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but I was thinking of in the Enuma Elish in, in Babylon, uh, you have the, the, the dragon queen, Tiamat, who uh, currently lives on in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and she's, <laughs> she's opposed by Marduk, uh, who makes the universe out of her dead body. And so I have seen that cartoon. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, and that's, you know, that's what I don't know. I'm not exactly sure how old the 6,000 BC. Yeah. A while back. But, but here's the thing about Beowulf though, uh, Chris, which I think is to your point, it's very rarely discussed, but in the original text of Beowulf, the thing that gives him an edge over Grendel and his mother is that he's a Christian mm-hmm. and okay. The other guys do not have that ability. And uh, Grendel is a descendant of Cain in yes. in the story, right? So, mm-hmm. but the fact is that, you know, Beowulf shows up and he says to Hrothgar, you know, the, the other warriors say, how come we need this outsider to come and, and fix everything? And Beowulf says, you can't fight this foe. You don't have the ability, right? Because I'm a Christian and that's what I'm here to teach you, actually. So it's a missionary text. And that's great. Okay, so and you would argue that that religious education in this context is his essential greater knowing than, you know, in, in as much as Van Helsing is more educated than his peers as well. Yeah, exactly. They have secret occult knowledge that gives them the ability to walk in the domain of the monsters. And, you know, and Beowulf, too, uh, I think, unlike some of the ancient heroes like Hercules or whatever, but Beowulf uh, does get infected in some way. And it's his doom when he fights the the dragon, right? Because he's as afflicted with greed as the dragon is. Maybe I'm interpreting that wrong. I don't think about that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this is interesting. So then the question becomes, now I approach this, I am not a monster expert. I, I work with a lot with mythology and its modern interpretation in comic. Again, if you've heard this show before, it comes up. So that's kind of very clear. We both do that. Yeah. I, but, awesome. but when you speak of, for instance, Hercules, another way, a monster hunter or Beowulf, or, you know, obviously you've got a heroic journey. I am very fascinated by the way you've both talked about, you know, the infection of the hero as. Oh, yeah. I think it's very clear. One of the central cases in Heather's book is Mm -hmm. Blade. It's on the cover. Right. Blade, the vampire hunter, as portrayed by Wesley Snipes. And Heather points out something. He says, we're going to get comic technology here just so that Wayne and I have something to say. (laughs) And then we'll we'll turn the show back over again. But Heather points out in the original Blade comics. Blade is not a vampire. He's just a dude. The original Blade comics were never super popular. It's one of many attempts to sort of revitalize yeah, he, the vampire. He, he was a uh, side character in the Tomb of Dracula series uh, yeah, initially. It was, oh. it, was, it was an attempt to bring back monster comics in the 70s. Yeah, I would say like yeah, 71-ish. Yeah, the comics yeah. code was rewritten around 71, 72. And yeah, so, they were so allowed, suddenly they were allowed to do monsters again. And it's like, ooh, monsters. And so they just kind of, Blade was a dude from the disco who had some <laughs> and it was also, well, it was also black exploitation. He was shaft. Yeah. He, yeah, he was. He, he carries he was black literal guy. shafts to, to kill vampires with. Yeah, <laughs> but it was not very well thought out. The entire comic was literally he's just some guy. He's cool because he's got like this disco outfit on and he's a black guy and he's got these wooden knives because wood kills vampires. That's the entire concept. No one thought about it much beyond that minor character until Wesley Snipes really, really wants to play him in a movie. <laughs> and then they decided that 
hey, let's make him part vampire yeah. as well, which becomes a successful film, arguably starts the, the superhero movie revolution mm-hmm. and gets folded back into the comics. And now very much so it's common for a vampire hunter to be part monster himself in a, in the comics. Yeah. Um, Heather takes it on and starts talking about there's the supernatural element of Buffy. She's not human, which is part of the hero's journey. Part of Joseph Campbell's monomyth is always the hero is in some way born special or become special in the call to adventure. Luke Skywalker is not just some corn fed farm boy. He's a corn fed farm boy who happens to be descended from the God of the force. Right. That's, that is, <laughs> yeah. the, sto- that uh, is the story of Luke Skywalker. It, <laughs> problematic though it may be. <laughs> oh my He's God. Not, yeah. Biggs couldn't be the chosen one. Harry really? Potter is the chosen one. There's yeah. always a chosen one. Neo is the chosen one. There's a chosen one. Buffy is the chosen metric one. Metric to something, to something yeah. that mm-hmm. Buffy is the chosen one. Right. It's, so it's interesting as a side note, uh, not to interrupt the story, Chris, but no, it's no, interesting no, as a side note that Ray, it seems like in the new Star Wars movies, Ray is being presented as someone who does not have an, an extravagant heritage. Thanks for ruining my childhood, oh, Mike. Oh, sorry, that's a different episode. We already did that one. Sorry. <laughs> and we spoke about this briefly on a different episode, but I, I think Ray is relevant there because, yeah. again, if you're if we're going to be talking about, I mean, is she a, she's essentially a monster hunter. Sure I think that's is. fair. Absolutely. She follows in her first film in episode seven. J.J. Abrams presents her as part of the hero's journey. J.J. is very fond of his mystery box. There's this big, big mystery and Ray is our new chosen one. Why is she special? Ooh, and there's a mystery. And then Ryan Johnson comes around with episode eight. I think he's poking a stick at the fanboy where he says, yeah, it turns out your parents just crack whores. That's it. They're not, <laughs> part, not part You are not they, special. They died and abandoned you. <laughs> Yeah, that, that that's order. what he tells her. He tells her, yeah, you know, they sold you for a fix. You are not important. You don't mean anything. You're just somebody. And yeah. I love that. But, yeah. you know, it fucks with the hero's journey. Yes, yes, yes. What do you mean she's not special? And one of the... Um, if she's not special, maybe I'm not that, either. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what's interesting about both of your work is you both seem to be making the argument that for the character who's not special, who if you're not born Buffy, then... Something happens to you, you become Mina Harker and you know, you gotta be be bitten by a vampire. So now you're special or Buffy's entire superhero team. I mean, it's two vampires and a werewolf and, and a witch who goes to Uh the dark side. And like, yeah, I mean, they, they all fall into that. The what Showtime series, HBO, Penny Dreadful. Uh Yeah. Which was Uh a better, better. Legal Extraordinary Gentleman until they got canceled and had to rush that last season. Yeah. But yeah, it's the same thing. They're all monsters. Well, I think I think I can speak to this. Chris, you asked, you know, when does this begin? And mm-hmm. I think that I was going to ask Heather if she was familiar with the work of Eric Butler, uh, who's a friend and colleague of mine. He has a book called Metamorphosis of the Vampire no, I, in theater and, and uh, literature and film. No, yeah. I'll have to check that out. Um, yeah, I think that you would really be interested in it because there's a in his analysis of Dracula, he he points out that Van Helsing and Dracula have a lot of very provocative similarities. Mm-hmm. One thing is they're both foreign. Mm-hmm. And that was a big issue in this, you know, foreigners coming in and poisoning our society in the same way that the foreign agents got into Mina's blood and poisoned her. They both manipulate printed information in a very interesting way. They both have very good hair. They both have good hair. Uh, Seward calls Van Helsing master, which is mm-hmm. which is what what uh, Renfield calls mm-hmm. Dracula, right? And there's a couple of other things too that he talks about that make you wonder. Well, what if Van Helsing is actually just 
another vampire who's keeping Dracula out of his territory. And he and the reason he can do this is because Mina is better at um, manipulating information than anyone else in the story. No, I can I can see huh. that. And, and that's sort of uh, they're both others, both Dracula and Van yeah. Helsing. So it, it also depends on the narrative. Some narratives play that up a little more than than others. I actually think whether intentional or not, the 1931 Universal film does a really good job of showing both Van Helsing and Dracula as these complete outsiders to the culture to the point where right. they if you listen to the speaking their dialogue is stilted in the same ways. Right. Um, so they, right. they literally sound, you can tell that they're supposed to, well, I mean, Bella Lugosi literally was just repeating phonetically his lines because he did not speak English when, or yeah. that's what the story is, that he did not speak English enough that, that he's, he's stilted because he's speaking phonetically and that, that really lumps them together. So I absolutely can see that. And uh, even going back to, I want to say about the, Maybe 15th, 16th century, there was in the vampire mythology uh, a character called the Dampier. And I know I'm not pronouncing that correctly because I don't know what original language that's in. And it is the half-breed son of the vampire that fights the vampire. So, so that sort of relationship character. D-H-A-M. I think it's, it's D- yeah, D-H-A-M-P-I-R-E maybe. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, Maybe a why. and that 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 character still exists. It's it's relegated to footnotes. I mean, it's kind of obscure, but it, it did exist. That idea that you you have to be of the vampire. So I can absolutely see the close connection between Van Helsing and Dracula. And in fact, I think I want to say in the 1931 film, and I could be getting my vampire movies confused, but I want to say in that one, Van Helsing actually refers to him as old friend. To Dracula, or Dracula refers uh, to Van Helsing yes. as old friend. That's right. Yeah, yeah. They've, there, there's they've yeah, and so you don't know what happened in that past, but they they have a past that you know of. That's that's fascinating. Um, I've just been actually, I just got back this week from Bulgaria, where I was investigating some archaeological sites where they've dug up some graves of vampires, and mm-hmm. what I mean by that is that these were graves of people who had, after their deaths, they had. They'd been dug up and mutilated, usually in a very ritualistic fashion by shoving an iron bar through their chest and shoving a brick in their mouth in in some cases. And... <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. I went to see one in particular in the city of Sozopol in Bulgaria, which is a beautiful town on the Black Sea coast. Uh, I recommend it to everybody. Um, beautiful beaches and uh, great food. And his name was Krivich, and he was a real uh, historical figure from the 14th century who was the mayor of Sozopol, who had been exhumed after his death. And he had been stoned to death by the villagers after losing a, a, a naval battle. And, uh, and then he was mutilated and buried in holy ground. So, um, I've, you know, I'm trying to trace the, the story back to its origins, but it makes it to the United States in the late 19th century, just before Dracula's rip. Oh, I'm sorry. But I wanted to say that I think that it's in the 60s that we start really seeing literature and other cultural uh, products in which we are meant to identify with the monster, right? In which the monster becomes a more sympathetic character. And I think that one of the first examples of that is 
John Gardner's novel Grendel, which is the story of Beowulf from the point of view of Grendel. Grendel's point of view. Yeah. yeah. You start seeing that in, in comics at that point as well. The thing, right. the Hulk, these are, mm-hmm. are monster characters. There've been monster comics in the, the 1950s, the giant monsters and in Marvel in particular, they just translated directly to the superhero genre around 61, 62. Absolutely. And I think that this is because the sixties are showing a reaction against, you know, the aftermath of world war two. And when we, we started to see what, uh, the traditional understanding of good and evil had brought us to this terrible mid-century crisis, the total demonization and in fact, monsterization, you know, of minorities, Mm -hmm. of homosexuals, of anyone who was different from you, um, and so on, you know, that resulted in the Holocaust and and other horrible pogroms. And as a reaction against that, we have the counterculture movement and the counterculture movement is much more embracing of counter narratives. That whole nature of of propaganda, Mav, you and I've talked about this in 1940s comics, the nature of propaganda and stereotypes. And it's literally that idea of demonizing the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We are mm-hmm. making the other a monster because it makes it easier to kill them. Absolutely. That's certainly sort of your classic. Why do we fight monsters? Because right. we're the good guys and the good guy always fights the monster. Right. And that's uh, and that's sort of a classic of not just American culture, particularly American culture, particularly the American version of the monomyth, but all sort of mythic heroes always standing for something else. I am showing you the righteousness of my ideology, of America's ideology, of yes. Christianity's ideology by vanquishing the evil that is the other the, <laughs> the heathens or the yeah whatever other the heathens the the africans the nazis you know, whatever other i happen to be positioned against right now if you're going to talk about changes that occur in the 50s and 60s i mean i would postulate that post world war ii there's an interesting thing that happens in literature overall with the you know, beginning into the into modernism beginning of postmodernism. i promise i'm not going to get too academic people hate <laughs> that on the show i don't but, know <laughs> but you end up in a moment after the Second World War. We're in a cultural moment where there's one country on the planet capable of destroying it, and it's us. Mm. <laughs> you know, like there, it's hard to not acknowledge that in a way we are the monsters. And, you know, it becomes sort of weird trying to deal with that in literature and in film for another decade or two until the Soviets basically develop enough cultural technological physical yeah. actual bomb, but they have to develop enough of a enough of a cultural specter that they can become an effective boogeyman so that we have other monsters to point at again. Mm-hmm. Because for a moment in like 1946, we're just the king of the world. There's just, there's just okay, well, they've they can wipe out all, all life. Uh, nobody fuck with America. That's pretty <laughs> much the story after Hiroshima. There's no other way of looking at it until things get to the point where we can be afraid of somebody this, else. Um, in the science fiction well, films of that era, too, right? It's it's the American absolutely, military, absolutely. the American government. Uh, and it's not until really mm-hmm. Vietnam comes through and that change occurs, at least um, from my perspective. You know, it's it's that horror that is propagated by American troops that comes into the average American household through the news and through the media. And then all of a sudden it's, wait, we were just watching, you know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers and all was well. And and now we're watching Halloween and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and nothing is well. Mm-hmm. When, and there's that whole the, the conspiracy theory thing, the the monsters lurking in the shadows who control everything idea that, that has really propagated since the 1960s as well. Uh, there are the monsters like, you know, Freddy Krueger or whatever. But, you know, how many 
I mean, you read Stephen King books and, and how many of these others, one of the biggest threats in these books are not the monsters. It's the government mm-hmm. interfering with this. In E.T., it's the government coming to kill this poor right. little alien, you know. Right. Um, so there's a a monstrous quality to our government, our society, our culture that I think plays out in, in these sort of broad symbolic ways. You know, you just made me realize, uh, Wayne, that the plot of E.T. is really similar to the plot of The Shape of Water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, if yeah. you have the director's cut where Elliot and the and E.T. have that That's moment sexy. in the yeah, bathroom. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I haven't seen Spoilers that. for E.T. and Shape of Water yeah, are a you know, really bad joke. <laughs> But I think that, I mean, I grew up, I was born in 1970 and I, I grew up reading, um, this experimental novel by someone who had done a lot of, basically she was just doing, um, soft porn romance novels and she tried her hand at horror and she wrote a book. Called, oh yes. Yeah. yeah. Ann Richards. You mean exactly. <laughs> Ann Richards. That's right. <laughs> Under the name Ann Rice, she wrote a book called interview of the vampire. And I remember reading that book this long before, um, yeah, before it became a thing. Before it became yeah. A thing. And, um, and becoming absolutely enamored with her mm-hmm. version of what the vampire is and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and absolutely falling in love with that and trying to in some way, uh, mimic it in my, in my day-to-day life. Uh, I did not go so far. <laughs> I did not go so far to become a goth, but I did listen to some Bauhaus and uh, who, who hasn't. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but I had a lot of friends who did, yeah. you know, and, but I think that there's this sense that when you are living in this post Vietnam era, uh, this sense that, you know, increasingly we do not trust authority figures. We don't trust the sites, the old sites of, of the, you know, they're, they're going to come in and save us. The woodsman mm-hmm. from literate riding hood is going to come in and save us. And Von Helsing and, and, you know, the, the white male middle-aged wealthy Christian straight authority figures are going to come save us. We don't have that trust anymore. And so we start to expand the notion of what it means to be a whole person and we become more and more attracted to monsters. And we, so I think that the, as a result of that, monsters become much more sympathetic, which is cool. Well, we, and we, monster hunters become more monstrous. We, we embrace our own sense of otherness, whoever we are. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and you, the, the things like you know, race and gender and all that stuff that, that are very specifically othered in this country. But, right. But I think you, all of us feel separate at some point. We all feel other. Yeah. And that you, embracing the monster in ourselves, we don't trust the government. We don't trust the authority figures mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Who can we trust? Well, ourself and our little tribe of other monsters. And you know, Lady Gaga, exactly. you know, little monsters is, you know, yeah. are, are her fan base. That's how she refers to them. Absolutely. Ap- apologies to Anne Rice, by the way. I got, I got her pseudonym wrong for my stupid joke. She, she called herself Anne Rampling and yeah. Anne Rockalore. I forgot about yeah. those. I, 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 in, my, in my mind, it was Richards. I don't even know who that is. I, I think it's a, Anne Richards was a, the governor of Texas. Yeah, right. Ah. Which, which, which may make her a monster as well. I, I, I've I never, to be fair, I've never seen her and Anne Rice in the same room at the same time. So. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. We're through the looking glass here on the I box. I would say two other line. things that I think Anne Rice yeah. does in Interview with the Vampire that I just have always been fascinated with. Number one, she really is instrumental in creating or cementing. She didn't create cementing the sexy monster, right? And that was even before the movie from the 90s. I mean, Bella Lugosi, a little bit you see it in the Universal film. Maybe you could say Lon Chaney Jr. a little bit in The Werewolf, but, but really she does it. And the other thing she does that I find most fascinating in my own studies is she's the first to play around with the idea of immortality being boring and probably 
problematic and the need for community, which goes yeah, along with what you're yeah, saying, right? Like, yeah. like your community of, of monsters, whatever that monstrosity is. And, and she really does yeah. it. And I think it's, um, it's, it's the character that Antonio Banderas plays in the film. And I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he specifically, thank you. Uh, he, he's Armand, Armand, yeah. Armand. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've never read, I've never no, read no, such no, a good no, book, but, you know, but, you know, but, but again, he is so sexy in that movie. I'm, but, uh, I'm, uh, yeah, with, I mean, he talks about it like this is his, my, my his family because he's old and, and he's seen it all, and and you know he's got to have some community to keep him wanting to live. I, I, I think it'd be a vampire really changed the trajectory of monsters and monster hunters a lot for the late 20th century. What was, the, yeah. what, what was the film recently with Tilda Swinton and, and Tom Hiddleston? Oh yeah. I, I never remember the name of it. It was but, great. But yeah, that, that's the premise of that movie where vampires mm-hmm. were immortal. Right. Oh God, it's right. Thursday. Now what? Right. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say the hunger. <laughs> oh, that the hunger, I think. Yeah. Is yeah. 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 But you know, the interesting thing about that, you know, I think it's one of the things that I find so fascinating about Anne Rice is how she attempts to break free of, of vampire storytelling, mm-hmm. but keeps winding up caught up in it. And I, in my book, I trace uh, the origin of the modern sexy vampire to a book by Catherine Lamb in the 18th century called Glenarvan, which was about, it was really a, a, a tell-all a novel about mm-hmm. her illicit relationship with Lord Byron. And his name in the book was Ruthven Glenarvan. And Ruthven, between the late 1700s and the publication of Dracula in the theater, the vampire was always called Ruthven after this sexy character. And and Byron himself had had equated himself with vampires in his own right. Yeah, John Polidori's The Vampire is about, that was his doctor. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and, and Polidori's mm-hmm. uh, book uh, is also supposed to be sort of like a tell all. And in Polidori's book, you have this character who is a young, a younger man traveling with this older man and the older man needs him to stay in touch with the world around him, you know? And that's, I, I see that also in Anne Rice's books as well, that the older vampires make younger vampires in order to stay in touch with the world as it changes out of their control. I, I'm going to make a, a book recommendation uh, while we're talking Byron and vampires and that sort of thing. There's a book called The Stress of Her Regard by Tim Powers, which features Byron and Shelley and Polidori as characters. And it's a different take on the whole vampire myth than than anything else I've ever read. I really thought it was kind of brilliant. If you haven't read that, throwing that out there as, as part of your vampire research. Thank you. <laughs> so. Well, I actually, I actually have a follow-up question since you guys are talking about, you know, now we're moving back into my area where I can actually contribute. If, when you're talking about the sexy vampire, that becomes, it's certainly an element of vampire fiction now, everywhere from Buffy to uh, Heather mentions in, in the book, in the blade book, Blade has a scene which is clearly meant to be a sexual scene where his love interest voluntarily lets him feed on her towards the end of the first film. You've got the Twilight vampires. You've got, obviously, Anne Rice's. By the way, Anne Rice, I, when I was researching for this episode, I've read the first, I've read the interview of the vampire several times, and I've read the um, other three books in that came after it, the stat queen of the damned. And I don't remember. And the, I think the body, body snatcher, body, body, thief. body thief. There's like 15 books in the yeah. Lestat series now. Yeah. When, like she said she was done forever yeah. after the fourth one. When the fuck did she write 11 <laughs> well, other yeah, books? Well, yeah, Armand has his own book now or, or two or three. Yeah, they, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was, I'm, I'm like, like you, Matt. I stopped after the body thief. 
Yeah. And I looked and I was like, whoa, they're, what do you mean they're 15 Lestat books? When did that happen? Anyway, so, so, but you've got all of hers. And what I find interesting about vampires by their very nature, there's no reason for it to be a sexy creature. They're monsters. They're, they're zombies. Yeah. They're yeah. intelligent zombies that come and eat people. That's the, the, the Nosferatu. I, I can speak to this. Well, yeah. But, but, but then it becomes, I, I mean, the, the way we sort of envision vampires typically whether we're talking about good guy vampires like your tortured edward from twilight or whether you're talking about your you know even dracula it becomes a sexy story it, 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 there's sort of a mixing of the yeah. incubus myth well, a character with that, or the succubus myth a character you and i have mentioned vampires. before in in comics vampirella who you know first appeared in the, the late 60s and you know mm-hmm. she's essentially hot sexy woman in a red bikini and oh yeah she's a vampire but the yep. first thing you notice is the hot sexy woman part as opposed to the 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 vampire stuff. Well, that, I, I she, she, knows, she plays off of like Lily and the Adams family, sort of that, you not Lily, the uh, Morticia, you know, there's, there's that whole, Morticia. yeah, that, that image of the vampire woman. The, yeah. Look, the, the, the vampire exists in, uh, a, uh, Heather alluded to this earlier. Also the vampire exists in Eastern European folklore, uh, for centuries prior to anyone in the West really knowing about it. Um, it wasn't until the early 1700s that the people in Germany, Austria, France, and England started uh, becoming interested in vampires. And up until Lord Byron, the vampire was not a sexy character. The vampire was unquestionably somebody who you would not want to invite to your birthday party. You know, a walking dead, mm-hmm. long nailed, fanged creature. He's a rat. That, He's yeah. A rat you know, like, yeah, yeah. The Nosferatu image. And the Nosferatu image is like that too. Yeah. But it was with the Byron injection into this. And then and there was a hundred years of theater uh, production that preceded Dracula, you know, in which the point of the vampire is that mm-hmm. he or she can prey on uh, people by pretending to be a person. Right. And so that was great for the theater because it was very performative. And in order to do this effectively, it was more, they had to be seductive. And then, of course, the issue of penetration, right? So on the Western mm-hmm. European stage in the 1800s, you couldn't have any sex acts, any overt sex acts. But penetration uh, by the teeth was, you know, and of course, the, the, the victim goes, oh, oh, you know. And, um, and so that was a way of simulating. Isolating that audio for clip yeah, later. Yeah, <laughs> and and I, I, I got to witness his facial expressions when he did that. So um, <laughs> I hate you both. Um, so... <laughs> But so the welcome um, to the show. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'm getting a T-shirt. So <laughs> no. So the so this is a way of simulating sex acts on on stage, which was very popular. And so I think that's a big part of the attraction of the vampire becoming sexy. So by the time Dracula rolls around, we've actually already had. Uh, you know, um, Bram Stoker owes a lot to the Irish writer Sheridan Le Fanu, whose vampire Camille was actually a lesbian for the 1860s. So this is, you know, a lot earlier than we think of this sort of literature coming out, but the, the monster gives us an opportunity to play in otherwise forbidden areas of sexuality. And I think uh, Heather talks about this also in her, in her work about the sexualized monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I had forgotten about Camille actually until you, you mentioned like, Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that seems yeah. to go with the Monster Hunter because I really look at it from Dracula forward. So it's nice to be reminded of the pre-Bram Stoker history there. And Van Helsing's very, there doesn't seem to be any sexuality 
associated with him. He, he almost feels a little fatherly, although depending how you want to read his relationship with Mina, you, you could draw more sexuality into it than I have chosen to do that. And perhaps that's my fault uh, as what I'm bringing to the character and my interests. But um, yeah, I mean, the monster hunter over time, sexuality becomes a major component of what they do because in a lot of ways, the monster hunter chooses to fight. And a lot of times, especially the male monster hunter, not so much the female monster hunter, but the male monster hunter fights because of a girl, because um, of moving beyond yeah. sexuality mm-hmm. to love. To protect. Um, but it starts with that sort of sexuality mm-hmm. uh, and that sexual connection. Right. Absolutely. And it is kind of amazing that Bram Stoker, for all of his personal um, short sightedness, I guess, was able to manifest this heroine. Right. Because at the end of the day, the other guys in the Harker troop, um, mm-hmm. they can't really fight Dracula. Only she can. Like uh, Bram Stoker, uh, mm-hmm. she's also Irish. Right. Um, no, so Irish. Or was he Welsh? No, Irish. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah. um, uh, there's, there's actually a lot in feminist scholarship about Mina Harker. And there really are, or at least there there was about 10 years ago or 15 years ago now, really sort of the, the women who, who wrote about her, or the authors who wrote about her, not all women, and saw her as sort of being put back into that feminine role. I'm of the different, the other camp, which kind of says, yeah, mm-hmm. but for that moment during that time, she is the most powerful of the monster hunters. She is the one that has to do it. it, it they, they exclude her and they yeah. fail. They bring her in and allow her to lead them. Yes. And they succeed. She, she's not the one that cuts the throat at the end uh, of Dracula, yes. but she's the one that gets into the place where Dracula can be destroyed through the slashing of the throat. And so I think that, that to diminish that because right. she becomes that mother at the end and she goes back to sort of the, the home, I think really does her a disservice. And she is in some part modeled after Bram Stoker's own mother, who was an early suffragette, Irish uh, suffragette. She was a new woman. Mm-hmm. What is the year of release on the original? On- I want to say 1897 is what I want to say, but I might be off. 1890. Seven. Yeah. Okay. Well, what I find interesting about that story, and this is something you sort of allude to, is yes, Mina is you know, certainly for a woman, turn of the century woman. She's got more agency than most heroines you're going to find in any book, certainly popular books, certainly written by a man. There's, you know, you could argue that Austin, for instance, has more for her characters but she she's an active part of this team she is on an adventure hunting monsters and as you just pointed out they can't do it without her Mm -hmm. however as you know as your work also points out she's able to become that because of the you know essentially the corrupting influence of becoming a monster herself so heather's book makes an argument that you know for the modern monster hunter Mm -hmm. for blade we talked about this briefly you're going to have an element of the monster inside so she becomes more of a monster but most interpretations, be, I mean, you talked about Stoker's, Stoker's version, you talked about other interpretations of Mina as well. There's in becoming a monster, she becomes more liberated sexually. She becomes she has dark thoughts. Van Helsing has to, you know, bind her in a mystic circle and make sure that she doesn't kill everybody. So she loses her humanity. I would argue that the book argues she's losing her femininity at the same time and that they have to save her to s- send her back to the world of motherhood and you know being a being the good girl because you know they all you know sure she was able to save the day but ooh we're gonna lose her as though you know as though being a proper woman in her place is to not be that character 
that essentially the book revolves mm-hmm. around. Well, and, and mm-hmm. this gets at one of the things that I'm really interested that I see um, in terms of othering, because I, I like to use post-humanist theory, which is that no matter mm-hmm. how much we embrace, say, uh, and I, I, I love Alien Chic, the, the, the theoretical work that Neil Badminton, I think, wrote, where we might love monsters, but only to a point. We are mm-hmm. always going to other them. Yes. They are never one of us. Yes. They are always, no matter how yes. much they're like mm-hmm. us, they're always, we keep them at arm's length. We keep them, whatever it is that we give them, there's something we don't allow them, right? So my more recent work deals with the soul in that respect, but, but there's all sorts of things, right? So Mina can have agency as long as she's a monster, but once she's pulled back in, she loses that agency because she will never be one of us. If she maintains that monstrosity and mm-hmm. then for women, especially the monster hunters, it's a little more complicated because women by their very nature in a patriarchal society are other through their sexuality, their ability to reproduce. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, yes. women mm-hmm. don't struggle as much with having the role of monster hunter typically because they're already used to being the other. It's the male monster hunters that really struggle with that. And they're like, Oh no, I'm other. What do I yes. do? With yeah, that? You talked about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, yes. You talked about that briefly in the book. You talked about the fact that, in a sense, I mean, I'm trying to think of the examples you used. You used certainly Buffy as an example. I did. You used, yep. you used Ripley from Alien, and I don't remember who else you used. But you basically make the point that there is mm-hmm. that they take to the role more naturally than, yeah, because, than a because Blade they're, or Van they're Helsing. Already, they're, they're, they're never, in a patriarchal culture, they're never fully us right because the us in that situation are are, are the male the men a, a little known character in in comics uh Back in the the seventies, they introduced Aaron Bloodstone, Monster Hunter. Who, I mean, oh that, yes, that, absolutely, that was his job, and he was part of a a family who had been monster hunters for generations. And somewhere in the last for, for picture, typical blonde dude in a monster hunter vest, and he's got a mm. magical gem grafted yeah, on his chest for reasons, yeah, which gave him strength or insight or something. That's Iron Man, but, but somewhere in the last twenty years or so, <laughs> yes, like Iron Man, but <laughs> magic, yeah, right? Oh, okay, <laughs> the magic yeah, yeah. stone, not technology. Oh, okay. uh, and yeah, he, he, yes, he, he looks he, exactly like he, the Iron he, Man he movie stone. Monster killing shotgun. But somewhere mm-hmm. in the last 20 years, Aaron died. His daughter Elsa has taken on the role mm-hmm. and has been you know, much more popular in the context of a not very popular character than, than her father yeah. was. Well, and, there's a, but, and, mm-hmm. and a much more effective version of him as well. So you know, Elsa Bloodstone in comics. I also think that a part of that might have to do with the fact that she looks exactly like him. She wears exactly the same yeah. outfit, which means that it's yeah. there's a magical gem implanted between her boobs. Right. That, and, that, you know, that doesn't hurt. Yeah, uh, I think I think um, that, that there's also a TV show right now called Van Helsing, which yes. yeah, which features I have not watched yet. But yes. Van Helsing. Yeah. Uh, Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Heather, something that, that really sprung into my mind when you were just, just talking now about mm-hmm. the acceptability of the of the impurity, right, is that when Harker falls asleep in the room of Dracula's castle and he's preyed upon by Dracula's wives, there are three things in this in this scene that shock him, right? One is mm-hmm. that the women are sexually aggressive, right? He's very, very disturbed mm-hmm. by that. The second thing is that they penetrate him instead of he penetrating them, right? But the third thing, and the thing mm-hmm. that horrifies him the most is that he likes it, right? 
Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and after that, he's broken. I mean, he's completely ineffective from that moment on. Right. And whereas Mina has the, has the, um, um, well, I don't want to say the cojones because that would be exactly <laughs> the wrong thing to say, but she has, she has the, the stamina to withstand it. And one of the things that, since we're talking about comics, one of the things that I really liked about League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is that Mina Harker shows up again mm-hmm. as this sort of immortal monster right. hunter right. who, is infected, right? Yeah, there's a brand new series of that that just started last month. So, yeah. And she's the toughest one. Yeah. And this is the thing that bothers me about the, and I, and I work with adaptation and I'm usually can, can be fairly, you know, oh, well, let's talk about why decisions were made and, and let's not say I like the book better. I'm, I'm very particular about that Same when here. I teach my students about adaptation. But this is one of my, my big complaints about the adaptation of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. In the, the graphic yeah. novel, she mm-hmm. is the leader, and and in the adaptation, and I theorize that it's it's partly because um, Sean Connery is an executive producer, and if he's going to play Alan Quartermain, he's not going to play the Alan Quartermain that Alan Moore created. <laughs> yeah, but but they take that away from her. I'm yeah. fairly certain no one involved in that film saw the saw the, read no, the book. No, <laughs> there's no there's the no way. Of Thompson, yeah. but I digress. Um, <laughs> no argument here. No argument. But here. Uh, but. but <laughs> The, the the idea that they take that agency away from from Mina from from the graphic novel and they make her more of a sexualized character mm-hmm. to me just demonstrates this whole idea of othering like that she can't be in that position of power absolutely um, in this movie she can't be leader and she's mm-hmm. she's full vampire in the film so in the yeah. book in the first volume mm-hmm. of the book which most of that story is drawn from to the extent that it's drawn from anything yeah. it's really a garbage movie do not go watch it um, <laughs> but but to the extent to the extent that and of course I own it because it's a movie and therefore I must but that said to the extent that she's does anything she's a full vampire in the film in the book she's not in the book she's just a mm-hmm. hero woman again she she is a vampire they don't yeah. know until the second volume there's sort of a oh yeah I was involved with a thing hunting vampires don't worry about it and then it never comes up again for right. that entire she, person she doesn't have person. she doesn't have super strength she doesn't have she can't turn no. into a bat she's, mm-hmm. she doesn't have immortality no, she's just, no, that, what, no, she, he, she, he does establish later she does have the immortality because she later she can, yeah, yeah. She yeah. But, that, but, right. but it's not part of the story early right. on it's just she is powerful in as much as she is just a kick-ass woman who all these guys bow down to right. just because she's earned it. And that's, yeah. you know, that's the yep. entire story. You know, that's the entire story that goes away for the film. Yeah, yeah. That goes away for the film. She's instead, they just say, well, you know, she's hot and she can, you know, you know what's even, people. So let's what's even do that. worse about that is that I think I, 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 I'm certain that Alan Moore's titling the, the series, the league of extraordinary gentlemen is meant to call attention to that yes. sexism. Yes. Right. And, the well, fact, you know, because uh, you would uh, refer in the turn of the century, you would refer to a group of of mixed people as gentlemen. But I think he's he's specifically calling attention to that. And then to have that. Yeah, he originally called it gentle folk. He renamed it. Oh, is that right? well, and, and as as the series progressed, the characters that he continues to focus on, you mean is immortal. Orlando is immortal. He, re- he, re- yeah, yeah, he's immortal. Yeah. He, he replaces. uh Captain Nemo with Nemo's daughter for mm-hmm. a series of stories. So he really focuses on feminine versions of these characters. And right. they're, those are the ones who maintain as the league continues over the course of the next century. Yeah. They're the most active agents. Yeah. Um, wow. That, that topic of conversation, I guess we resolved it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we never resolved it. I, I actually, we, I actually do want to ask one of the questions from uh, from the blog, just because we sort of alluded to it earlier when you guys were talking about whether the monster can ever be 
sympathetic. And one of our listeners, Nicola Seto, she commented about Frankenstein, which I thought was interesting. Oh, yeah. She said, I think the Frankenstein mythology is interesting because in the novel, it starts with the doctor as the monster hunted by the creature. Mm-hmm. Victor doesn't hunt him until after the creature kills his wife. However, most people are more familiar with the Karloff films than but that reverse that, that dynamic. And I think that is interesting because clearly we tend to, in popular culture, we very much refer to the creature or the monster as Frankenstein. Right. <laughs> yeah. But in the, in that original, in that original I book, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I, again, I'm a comic book nerd. So his name is Adam. <laughs> the creature is very much, you know, he's the humane one for much of that book. And I think she makes an interesting point of, yeah, it, it really is about Victor being the monster, at mm-hmm. least early on. And then, you know, that does switch. But I think what Heather said about us never being able to fully to fully trust the monster, the monster must always be other. So is that why that novel has to resolve that way? Can we just not accept that this undead combination of parts stolen from graves can ever be purely human, even though he shows the most humanity throughout the novel? I, I would I'll take a stab at that first. I would say that, as I mentioned before, community is so important for helping try to establish an us of one's own. And that's the thing that's denied the monster over and over and over again from the moment when the, the Lacey, right? The, the Lacey family won't accept him to the moment where yes. his creator mm-hmm. yeah. promises and then refuses to create a family and refuses at the very beginning to mm-hmm. just be his family, his community. And so for me, reading that narrative, I don't think the monster ever becomes less sympathetic. Do I feel like he should kill people because he's angry? No. But can I understand, you know, over and over this, this being wants to do what we all want, which is to, to create a community, to create a family around us if we don't have one biologically. And, and that is he's thwarted at every right. single turn from the very beginning when he's refused a name. And so, yeah, I think that that's the way that, that he stays right. other. He's, he's always othered because he's alone and, and isolation is an othering construct for us as, as human beings. Absolutely. I, I, I go uh, to great lengths uh, with Frankenstein in my book, partially because I feel that this is another situation where there's a hundred years of <clears throat> theatrical production between the publication of Frankenstein in 1819 and the release of the, the monstrosity of wow. that Boris Karloff was mm-hmm. in in 1931. 31. <laughs> 31. And the film, uh, which was adapted from a stage play by Peggy Webling, really one of the worst uh, stage plays in the history of Frankenstein, 1929, is owes a lot more to that hundred years of performative tradition than it does with the novel. It has very little commerce with the novel. It has commerce with the theatrical tradition, right? But the theatrical tradition starts subverting that, the intelligence and the humanity of the monster immediately. And he becomes mute in the very first production, which is 1823, which I think is, you know, it, it really goes to show how people would much rather in the performance culture have something very simple and easy to digest. But he is also an innocent who's abused. And the first thing that happens to him, the monster, when he rises from the slab in the 1823 play is that Victor tries to kill him with a sword. And I think that uh, if you look at where Mary Shelley was when she wrote this play, she had just had a miscarriage. Her relationship with Percy Shelley, the poet who was married to somebody else at the time, he didn't seem to care about the death of their child. And she was in a, a place of tremendous pain with this. And I think she was 
look at her, her mother had died in childbirth, giving birth to her. And her mother, of mm-hmm. course, was Mary Wollstonecraft, the great uh, feminist intellectual. And I think that there's something about Victor's attempt to create life without having to go through the process of birth because Victor's mother also died in childbirth, giving birth to his younger brother, uh, much younger brother. And what happens is that Victor does give birth to this creature and is horrified by the creature and abandons him instantly. Right. Thus, that is his monstrosity, his abdication of his parental duties towards towards his creation. Right. And there's a, I think this is something that comes back again and again. If he had nurtured the creature, the creature would not have been evil. Right. And so the creature operates very clearly, I think in his own mind from this moral position that, you know, if I obviously in this world, you, you don't get what you have a right to, you only get what you force to exist. However, Victor is not a mother. Victor is male. And is there an argument in Frankenstein that the creature cannot be nurtured because the creature has no mother and the natural order of things is for a mother to do that? Is that the argument that that text is making because Victor is incapable of mothering? I don't know that Mary Shelley believes that Mary Shelley has no mother, but is that book making that argument? Well, I mean, Mary Shelley's mother wrote a text called Vindication of the Rights of Women, in which she it's, it's this is a foundational feminist mm-hmm. text. Actually, in my dissertation, I described yes. it as a seminal feminist text. And my dissertation advisor said, I don't think you can Use call it that a seminal yes. feminist that text. Word. <laughs> so I, I don't know if I would say ovarian some uh, feminist text. But, it's, it's, <laughs> um, but, you know, in it, Wilsoncraft is writing in a very sophisticated manner, of course, about um, the these separations of of duties that she says are, you know, a lot more to do with social roles than to do with any individual person's ability. So I, I don't mm-hmm. think that I would say, and I'd be very interested to hear what Heather has to say about this, but I don't think that I would say that Victor fails as yeah, a parent because he's not a woman. I think he fails because of his own innate, uh, power. doesn't try. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, Shelley, Shelley and Byron both you know, abdicated their responsibilities as, as parents in many ways as well. And I, I would agree with that. I, I, so, um, yeah. I think upon seeing what he creates, Victor just says, this is too, to come back to the word I, I continue to use. It's too other. It's, there's nothing of me here. There's no way to bond and, and chooses, not to. He there there are so many orphans in the text and knowing the yeah. background of Mary Shelley. Yeah, I mean, I would think that yeah, I don't know if it's it's gender or if it's more that that Victor just says, Oh, this is a cre- this is hideous. I, I mean, this is a hideous creature I've created. This will never be part of, of the us. It will never be part of humane society as he defined it. You can't see the air quotes I just used around humane society, but they were there. Um and so he says that he says this this creature will never be part of culture. <laughs> what have I done? And then makes the worst choice humanly possible, which is, I don't know, I'll just abandon it. Good luck. I, I mean, which, which is a completely ridiculous choice, but as I often <laughs> tell my students, if you don't have that choice, you wouldn't have a novel. So there you <laughs> right. go. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah. He cannot kill it on page one because then there's no story. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> yes. mm-hmm. yeah. But I think, you know, it's it's interesting that in the more recent versions, uh, Kenneth Branagh did a, a film of this in the late 90s that was supposed mm-hmm. to be very faithful to the original text. But in it, 
you actually see Victor trying to help the monster after his birth and is very much like a birth. He, he comes out of this iron womb in a sack of amniotic fluid and, and he tries to help him, but he thinks he's right. dead and only leaves him after he thinks he's dead. And to me, that's a huge mm-hmm. violation of, I mean, it makes Victor well, and, a more sympathetic character, but it's a terrible violation of, of, of the depth, the psychological depth and the moral complexity yeah. of the novel. One of the things uh, you mentioned that kind of brought a film and I, I like the setting in that one because I think it is, it's trying to make more sympathetic Victor because the setting is very soft lighting, very womb-esque in a way that the metallic electricity of some of the past film settings don't achieve. And I've often thought this this seems to be a much more maternal setting so it's trying to say victor may be father but he's trying to create a more authentic birth like Mm -hmm. experience or kenneth braun i should say as the director with the visionaries trying to create a more labor birth experience for his monster yeah i i I think that much more organic yeah one one american no Jacob's Ladders in sight. That's right. That's right. One of my arguments in my book is that I think that scholars have paid very little attention to the fact that she subtitled her book, The Modern Prometheus. Yeah. And what, what she's referring to there is the play Prometheus Bound by Aeschylus from, uh, you know, from ancient Greece. And that play is all about the relationship of, you know, what, what are the duties of the creator to the created? And in this case, Prometheus had sacrificed everything to protect us, his, 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 his creatures. Prometheus created humanity in this. And Zeus, the god of storms, of course, is, is the, is the villain in this story. So to me, that's what I'm always comparing. I'm always trying to compare Victor to Prometheus and saying, well, what kind of choices did Victor make that are different from Prometheus's? And what? that's it right there is the abandonment of his responsibilities as a creator. And we solved that problem as well. <laughs> <laughs> We never solve problems. That's the whole show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was just going to say, I love the Frankenstein narrative and it's, it wasn't one that, that came up in my initial work as monster hunter because there wasn't a monster hunter per se, as I was defining it, but I did publish an article on, on the movie, I Frankenstein. And so I think that even this Frankenstein narrative seems to be moving in that popularity direction of Monster Hunter more and more uh, in some of the more recent adaptations. So I don't know what it is about popularity of Monster and Monster Hunters, but they keep popping up. Frankenstein is the great myth of modernity, right? Because it's about the the battle between the the artificial mm-hmm. and the natural, right? And I think I think it goes back to the issue of birth. It's a it's, it's an artificial birth, right? But the Eastern European writers pick this up in the very late 1800s with uh, the golem, mm-hmm. you know, recapitulating the golem in a way that is owes a lot to Frankenstein. Uh, the golem's a very old myth, but the the golem as it appears in the way we look at it now is very influenced by Frankenstein. They even use some of the same words in the plays about them uh, prior to the movies. And, you know, this notion of technology gone awry and the dangers of science without ethics and so on. So all of that, I think, contributes to the popularity of the monster and the longevity of the monster. I think Frankenstein is the most adapted story uh, of yeah. all time, if I understand the the DC Comics version of Frankenstein right now mm-hmm. is essentially a monster hunter. I mean, that's the role he's playing in mm-hmm. the DC universe. Yeah, you, you know, other comic stuff. Hellboy mm-hmm. is a demon. He's a monster who 
hunts monsters and, and defeats monsters. Just moving away from that that very quickly because we're we're a little over an hour and, and not not to end it right now. But I would be remiss if I didn't encourage Mike to talk about werewolves for a minute or two. Because <laughs> I, I know the werewolf is is his favorite monster, and if you saw how hairy this man is, you would understand why. <laughs> okay yeah the werewolf is my favorite monster and i think it's because i identify most with the werewolf well you mentioned earlier not not to put you on the spot but you mentioned your interest going back to childhood and you yeah. would talk about that and you and i have talked i find that to be one of the most interesting parts of your book if not to put you on the spot but if you're comfortable talking about some of those elements you put it in your book how uncomfortable yeah, can you be no i, I gotta put um, it out there so i grew up uh jewish and olive skinned in salt lake city in the 1970s and all of my peers everybody i knew was a very blonde very blue-eyed very alabaster skinned mormon and anti-semitism i'm afraid is is written very much into the mormon religious uh, practice. It's in the it's in the uh, the holy books, and and it was a very difficult uh, experience to grow up in that um, in that environment. And so, I think looking back, that I was attracted to monsters from day one because I felt a kinship to them. You were othered. I was othered, and I was othered in a way that was specifically monsterizing. My uh, the other kids at school used to say, "Where are your horns, Jew? Uh, where's your tail? Is it true you have black blood?" You know, and so, so I was I was the monster. I was a monster, and I remember thinking I could embrace this and I could be the monster that that they want me to be. And that might be a place for me to exist. You know, a lonely place for sure, but a place that had some power in it. And so, so, you know, so the fact that then that's about the same time, Grendel, Jesus Christ, superstar interview, with the vampire, those are all starting to emerge in popular culture. Oh, and of course, Rocky horror. Yeah. Which, you know, speaks to a lot of what uh, Heather was talking about. Rocky horror. You've got this gender bending. He, he, he's kind yeah. of a vampire. He looks, he presents as a vampire initially, <laughs> but then he turns to be a Dr. Frankenstein and then he is a space alien and, and it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> right? And I remember watching that, you know, I, I, I think I was probably 14 when I went and caught the midnight movie and Reagan was, it was 1984 Reagan's in power in, in America, Thatcher's in power in Britain. And it was just this conformity nightmare. And then you saw this <laughs> Tim Curry, you know, uh, Oh, and he's King Kong also. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's just wonderful. Yeah. Um, it's such a wonderful mashup of all of those, those tropes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then of course the movie itself is very subversive of monster movie tropes and, and, and of everything, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a presidential speech in it, but it's Nixon's resignation speech. So it's the nadir of presidential yeah. speech. It's awesome. So anyway, where am I going with this? Oh, so I, I really feel like I have some idea what's going Going on when I look out and I see things like what's happening with, well, of course, what's always happened with women in our culture, what's, what's always happened with minorities, people of color, particularly in recent years, immigrants from uh, Central and South America, Muslims. I feel a kinship with these othered individuals because I had to play that role myself. And I was going somewhere with this. Werewolves. Oh, yeah. So, um, so the thing about the werewolf, thank you. Sorry. Uh, you could edit out a whole bunch of that, I'm sure. Oh, no, no, no. This stays. <laughs> um, the thing about werewolves is that I began to realize I was really scared of them when I was a kid. I was so scared of werewolves. Like, that was the thing that scared me the most. That was the creature under my bed. That was the creature in my closet, the one waiting outside. And it wasn't until I was in my I started really doing monster research that I realized that it wasn't, uh, this is getting a little personal, but it wasn't my fear of being eaten by a werewolf. It was my fear 
of becoming a werewolf, being consumed by a werewolf, and <laughs> and what the werewolf was capable of, which is to take what it wants without regret or guilt or fear and just be the most badass person in the room, right? That is really what was scary to me. And when I started looking at that and embraced it, I began to realize that monsters are a two-way street, right? You can look at them as a way to other people. And like we were talking at the beginning of the, of the show, monsterization is an important component in the dehumanization of people that you want to commit atrocities against. But if you look at the monster and see yourself, then it becomes a tool for immense self-discovery and personal psychological exploration. So that's really what I wanted to talk about in my, in my research. When that identifying with the monster that was alluded to that, you know, how in the last 50, 60 years, rather than being the thing we fight against becoming one, mm -hmm. you know, we become monsters ourselves. We embrace that to be able to fight these larger evils. Exactly. I, and, and find the power in those monstrous ideas. Absolutely. I personally have very little affection for twilight, but <laughs> I see why it's important for Mm -hmm. For people who are younger than me, as they're coming up and they're and they're looking at this, uh, Harry Potter's in the same vein. There's a wonderful scene in The Wizard of Oz in 1936, I guess, where Glinda asks Dorothy, "Are you a good witch or a bad witch?" And she misunderstands the question. She says, "I'm not a witch at all. I'm not any kind of witch at all." But she is, yeah. <laughs> and she, my, my impression, exactly. <laughs> and you know, so that like what what Glinda's telling her is that you have immense personal power. How are you going to use it, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's going to make you a monster either way. Right. I don't know if this is something, Heather, you talk about in your in your work. But Dorothy, who is a witch hunter, who becomes the most powerful witch. Yeah, I don't talk uh, about that in particular. But one of the lines I um, take from the Van Helsing movie, which really made an impact in my research, is at one point Van Helsing is asked, are you a murderer or a man of God, Mr. Van Helsing? And in the end, he says a little of both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That is so not a good movie. <laughs> it's really not. And it, it's almost embarrassing to say that it was very inspirational. The idea was inspirational for my work, even though the movie is not very good. But I do you, like that line. You would be amazing. Look, I, yeah. I, I, so do I. I. I think it's a very, I think things being not good and not, and being important yeah, that's are different. Not, that's I, right. I very yeah. free, Wayne knows it. Wayne knows that I very frequently. No, no, no. God. Well, no, no, no. Manimal was good. Manimal is a, is a work of Part. Again, if you listen to this show, you know it. Go watch Manimal. I was going to say Sucker oh, Punch, yeah. which I yeah. which I reference a lot. Sucker Punch is a horrible film, but it's very influential. Yeah. No, I, mean, no, I think that's right. You know that the part of the reason why there hasn't been done a lot of research on the theater of monsters in the 19th century is because the people thought it was trash. It was pop trash. But mm -hmm. I'm saying if it is pop trash, then it plays a really important role in the development of these stories, Frankenstein, Dracula, the werewolf, that are very important to us what, now. What, what else do, Mav, what else is it that you and I do that's generally considered pop trash? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pop, pop trash is the entire reason this show exists, okay? So, so let's love on this. Box pop trash. Box pop trash, I like that. No, no one can pronounce the show. If somebody asks me, is it Vox Populorum or is it Vox Pop? 
podcast. I'm like, it's both because nobody can actually say the Latin. It's a joke that no one gets but me. Don't worry about it. I totally get it. Oh, see, someone actually read the tagline. So I think everybody else just thinks that's Greeking and that I forgot to take it off. No, that no, means something. I looked something. it up before I, you know. before I came <laughs> on. Oh, okay, I was going to say, I was going to say, if you speak Latin or you can use Google, you can figure it out. But anyway, I wanted to ask, sort of tying all this all together, because I was going to bring up, you know, I used my example was True Blood, um, but I think it's not just that. I, I want to start with Twilight just because Mike just said he hates it and we're all grown up, so we do too. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, well, I got an assignment when I was writing book reviews. I I got an assignment to review Twilight, and I did well before it became the pop sensation it is. And my my review is essentially: if I was a fourteen year old and I had never encountered vampires before, this would be the greatest book ever. However, <laughs> they yeah, sparkle. You know, I, so I, I gave it a good review within the context of what I thought it was trying to do at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's interesting. So I mean, just because it sort of ties into a little bit of what Mike said, it's very, very, if you, if you know what to look for when you're reading it, it's very inspired by the Mormon faith who at this point, Mike's, you know, Mike's upbringing was standing there an other population in America as much as you're going to get at this point. And I think one of the things that I'm hearing both from, from Heather and Mike, and I think it's whether you're the monster or you're the monster hunter. And I think this might be why in the last 20 or 30 years, they've very much melded together with, with your Buffy, with your blade, with your, I would argue, Sookie Stackhouse in true blood. I think that you end up in a situation where there are, here's my opportunity to once again turn this into a Trump show. There are enough pockets of subculture in America right now with your identity politic argument that there are enough little, enough tribalism tribes exist that pretty much anyone can find themselves othered at a point, whether they, whether they functionally are in a majority or not. Most people, particularly if you're going to be reading things as, you know, as in puberty, as an adolescent trying to go through, uh, trying to go through stuff, you probably find yourself feeling like the outsider. So where you're where your Superman in 1939 exists as I am a poor little kid and I want to believe that I'm strong and powerful in 2018 you're a 14 year old boy or girl and you just feel like no one understands you. And you know who else no one understands? Buffy. You know who else no one understands? Sookie Stackhouse. Bella. Bella from Twilight. Any member of X-Men. Bella from Twilight. I've not actually read the book. I I actually have seen all the films (laughs) uh, because because that's what you do. That's what I do. That's my excuse. And I didn't like them and she should have chosen Taylor. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, no, never mind. He's he's really cute. But anyway, um, but I have seen all the films. And if you're if you're actually watching that film, all the films are is I'm a good little girl in a good Mormon town. And really, there's two boys who like me and I'd really like to fuck them. <laughs> That's the story of Twilight. And then it's sort of hidden mm-hmm. under this, oh yeah, there's vampires and werewolves are real. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. But that's both, not really both the bad boy. Yeah, they're both the bad boy in their own way. But that's not really the story. The story is really about it, it, Carolyn Clover in in her book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, makes uh, makes an, an argument about how Halloween and all these movies are really 
about sort of the sexual awakening struggle of of the young girl, the fine that who becomes the final girl, who you know Jamie Lee Curtis's character uh, Laurie in Halloween. You can also argue this even, let's see, if you look at Carrie by Stephen King, a different kind of monster, she's essentially a male fear of pubescent girls. If you are going through that, you know, you can identify with the character of the monster hunter who frequently I'd say is a relatively normal person in a world of monsters. I'm not the most monstrous if I'm Sookie or Buffy, but all my friends are monsters. I mean, Buffy is just a kind of popular teenage girl. She's cute. She's blonde, but she feels like a monster. And she's in a world where her best friend is a witch and her other best friend is a werewolf. And both of her boyfriends are vampires. And the most normal person in her life is Xander, who is also a loser. Like, there's not, like they don't have that community that they build into it. Mm-hmm. Is Wayne, you talked about Lady Gaga and her little monsters. We are a community of monsters finding power in our banning together. I was going to say what redeems Twilight, but I'm not going to go that far. I don't think, I don't think this redeems Twilight, but it is something that is a little bit meatier to chew, to chew into, right? Which is the sense that you find Twilight in this tradition of supernatural stories like Harry Potter, like Buffy, in which the adults, the, the, and this goes back to our earlier point, the traditional authority figures who are supposed to keep us safe are not capable of keeping us safe. And we are out there as children in a world of monsters. And, you know, to speak to Bella's strength as a character, she is presented with a choice of how she's going to use her agency, right? What, what agency she has, she has a choice and she can embrace different aspects of her own monstrosity in order to fulfill, to get the things that she wants. Right. And that's why I compared it to uh, Wizard of Oz. And Harry Potter also makes the same choice when he shows up at, at uh, camp uh, or at Hogwarts the first day. And, um, and Malfoy says, hey, you should hang with us. And he says, no, I'm going to be a good guy. And that, that's when I lose interest in Harry. But, and, <laughs> <laughs> but Heather, you know, I, because representation of, of women in these, in these stories is, is, is central to your work. Do you have a, a thoughts on Bella from Twilight? I have read the books mostly because I got tired of presenting at conferences and people asking me about it and not having any answers, except the fact that I didn't want to read the books. But I felt that wasn't good enough. <laughs> I had to articulate why. Same here. I have real, real problems with Bella as a female reader in the 21st century. I'm like, really? This, this is our heroine? Because I actually, because Katniss came to popularity a little after Bella, I, I actually read uh, uh, the Katniss narrative first. And I thought, really? Teenage girls in America? <laughs> you prefer Bella? <laughs> <laughs> I love the Hunger Games books. I like the Hunger Games movies. I love the books. Well, you know, I don't like Katniss either. It's okay. <laughs> I have, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. Problems with Katniss. I, as I, a I, I, fire I liked her better <laughs> yeah. earlier than later, but but still, that idea. I'm like, I find Twilight to be challenging, probably because I think Mike or Wayne, one of you said it earlier. I'm not the 14 year old girl who's targeted, but. I'm fascinated with the Twilight series by the number of middle-aged women who latched onto that, right? And how that kind of brought Mm -hmm. up um, uh, this idea Mm -hmm. of, uh, well, obviously led to Fifty Shades of Grey, which is fan fiction of Twilight, or at least the ideas fan fiction of Twilight. You know, this this whole thing of who who was fascinated. Like as a fourteen year old girl, mm-hmm. I might have been interested in Twilight. I don't know. I was more of a Lydia from Beetlejuice kind of girl, but maybe. 
Um, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> probably not been quite so attentive to Bella, but, but I'm fascinated by this idea of these middle-aged women who came to the narrative and loved it. And I have some yeah. friends who just really loved it. And I'm saying, well, what is it? And of course it's escapism because isn't that what fantasy literature is? It's you escape into the narrative that most appeals to you. For me, that was the power, right? Mike, you were talking about it, that, that sense of, of autonomy and that sense of strength. But for these, yeah. for, for, for some of the population, or at least some of the, the very small number of women that I've talked to that like this text, who are sort of moms and, and maybe in the, the 30 to 50 demographic, they're like, you know, we don't have that kind of romance in our lives. Uh-huh. We're, we're moms. We're keeping it together. You know, like we're working full time and we're raising kids and our husband, you know, our spouse, our significant other. They're tired at the end of the day. We're tired at the end of the day. And, and we get wrapped up in this text. So I guess for me, I see its place. Like was already said, I, I understand why it's why it's there and why it's popular. Yeah. I couldn't get through all four movies. I tried, yeah. but but I did manage to read all the books. <laughs> me too. Heather, I, I, I also, uh, this is, it's, it's so funny that you, you say that because I was always trashing Twilight in my lectures and whatnot. And, you know, mainly because I feel like uh, one of the things that makes monsters so compelling is the sense of pathos that they bring. And the pathos comes from, a war within themselves as monsters, right? They're always, they're, they're very powerful, but they're also very fragile, right? And they, you know, a, a bolt of sunlight or a silver bullet, something pure can undo them because they are at war with themselves. And that's where the pathos comes mm-hmm. from, right? And I don't see the, the, the monsters in Twilight as having any pathos, right? They're, because Bella's the monster. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. But my students said to me, have you actually read Twilight or seen any of the movies? And I was like, no, are you kidding? I won't. And they said... <laughs> I'm a grown man. <laughs> exactly. And they said, well, then you shouldn't diss it. You know, you should really, you should really, like... R- Encounter opinion. Yeah. And, and I was like, <laughs> well, they got me there. So, and I think it's important to the, to the storytelling. It's important to the tradition of vampires that, that we understand what Twilight does and, and its function. And all my students said, don't worry, it will live down to your expectations. And it did. Um, and, but, but it is important. And I'm glad that I looked at it. Uh, <laughs> I, I love the struggle. I was go, yeah. I'm struggling here. Um, uh, uh, no, I lost it. Whatever it was, I, I was going to say. Think I think I, I said Bella's the monster, but that's mostly because what makes that book work or again, the films. Cause again, I, I started reading the first one and yes, it's my job. I only have so much patience. I watched the movies. Um, the thing about Bella is she oh, is frightening, frighteningly normal. She is a blank state slate that anybody can sort of map themselves onto you uh, Heather talked about you know middle-aged women who are reading it this is a story about any girl USA who and she's not terribly popular she's not terribly special but both the you know the number one jock on the football team and the really cute quiet dreamy gothy artist or uh, artist musician guy <laughs> stalker are both in, yeah are both in love with her and totally devoted to her and she never has to do anything other than sort of be her regular self for these two guys to just sort of devote the rest of their you know lives at least for the next three books to sort of mm-hmm. pleasing her and fighting over her and that makes her you know it's not just the romance it's you are an outsider because she maintains her outsidership even after she sort of chooses to be a part of the little vampire family thing. Yeah. But she is. Oh, 
but she's that's, always that's, sort of uh she's sort of a I can be you know I guess I am special because everyone loves me and that's appealing i guess yeah and actually that's another that presents another value of this text in that first of all anything that gets young people reading i'm in favor of and and Mm -hmm. and second of all i've discovered you know i've been teaching monster studies now for about 10 11 years 12 years and it's a gateway drug for monster culture right so Mm -hmm. we all have to encounter monsters Mm -hmm. for the first time somewhere and fall in love with them those of us who who want to study them and so, you know, so I often get, this is why my students push back so hard. You know, they were like, but I love Twilight. And I want to say, okay. Because it was the exactly. first, right. You can love it'll Twilight. Be, it'll you be the way you the next generation. And criticism is an act of love. And now here, read Camille. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then we, you know, yeah. <laughs> Again, scary stories to tell in the dark. I mean, yeah. not, not the yeah. world's best we started with comic there. books from the, uh, or I did from you know, the 60s. <laughs> Those are fun. TV yeah. show, so come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no question. I love that show. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Oh, exactly. I love, that. I love those books. <laughs> uh-huh. And you mentioned yeah, Lydia. And I'm sure monster scholars in 1982 were like, oh, that's crap. What are you going to read Absolutely this? Absolutely. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And they were yeah. all reading medieval uh, manuscripts. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is monster studies comes out of medieval studies yeah. and it's well, only people like, uh, like exactly. myself and Heather and, and some other people who, who are emerging now who are, you know, really trying to take this stuff and, and say, well, what about pop culture? What about, mm-hmm. you know, how does it affect us now? So, so I'm going to say we've resolved nothing, even though I think we've resolved a number of things. Our, our, like we've, yeah, we have our, our, forward significant. Our, our, our time is we're, we're way over, which is fine because this will get edited down in Including that <laughs> statement. <laughs> Again, every time you address the editing, that's how you stay on. And not, just because it amuses me. <laughs> Don't put this on. But <laughs> no, I, I, no. I, this this has been great. This has been a great conversation. I I kind of assumed it would be given the topic and, and the people we know. So yeah, yeah. yeah it, this has been great. I mean, there's more that I. We may, even want to ask. Yeah, we may do a follow-up episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, why don't you have us? Because I could literally just talk about the ways in which things sort of happen with True Blood and the female protagonist throughout that throughout that series. That's an that's an hour conversation. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but that's easily oh, yeah. an hour conversation. I, and I've read several uh, of the books as well. I have the first one. I need to actually I haven't actually read them. I know I know a lot of the differences. I also have thoughts on Katniss and I wonder would you consider that a monster hunting book? So there's yeah. definitely a follow up episode in the future here. But I, I definitely want to thank you guys both for coming on. This is yeah, I really yeah. enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Heather. Do you guys have anything to promote? Mike, what, you know, you, well, you have a book. Uh, yeah. So the book uh, is The Monster in Theater History, This Thing of Darkness by Michael Chimmers. And it's uh, it's published by Rutledge. Um, and we'll, we'll, link to, we'll link to it on the blog page. Yeah. So, and it's, you yeah. can get it at Amazon.com. Um, I also have other writings, uh, but they're going to be in scholarly journals. I don't know if they would appeal to your, your audience. <laughs> Well, they'll appeal, they appeal to me. I don't know. <laughs> Heather, what about you? Uh, my book is The Monster Hunter of Modern Popular Culture, McFarland Press by Heather Duda. And I've got another article out there stitching together the soul uh, and I, Frankenstein. And uh, that was published in a collection last year, 21st Century uh, Monstrosity. Um, so check mm-hmm. them out and it's fun stuff. All this monster hunting stuff is good and, and monsters. So much fun. <laughs> I have that. I have that book, by the way, uh, and um, and I know your work from yeah. that, Heather. So it was a great, 
Great pleasure. It was a great to talk pleasure to, to talk to you too. I just really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, they will both be linked to in the show notes if you guys want to follow it over. And if you, you know, if you if you click and order it from the Vox Popcast website, they will get several pennies, and Wayne and I will get several pennies. And- <laughs> That's what that community is about. Uh, Wayne, where can people find you? Uh, Wayne-wise.com is my blog, which hasn't been updated in ages because I'm doing other things. Uh, (laughs) And and primarily. Google me. You'll find my stuff. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You'll find his Twitter account where you can find him retweeting Vox Popcast. And you should be following Vox Popcast on on the blog, www.voxpopcast.com, where you can ask questions that will go to our future episodes. You can follow me at Chris Maverick on Twitter. You can follow my personal blog at chrismaverick.com. You can subscribe to us on Stitcher and iTunes and wherever podcasts are found. If you do, please leave us a review. That helps other people find the show. It moves us up in the rankings and it just makes us it feel makes good. It makes us feel really good. God knows yeah. we need yeah. that. Yeah. Because we're monsters. I'd like to thank, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song, which is playing right now and actually more appropriate than ever given today's topic. And I would like to once again thank both of our guests. Thank you guys once again thanks guys thank you thanks for having us and i'd like to thank everybody for listening and we will see you next time goodbye Bye. Bye. bye mr gosi i i know you're very busy but um can i have your autograph certainly You know which movie of yours I love, Mr. Lugosi? The Invisible Ray. You were great as Karloff's sidekick. Karloff? Sidekick? Fuck you! Karloff does not deserve to smell my shit! That limey cocksucker can rot in hell for all I care! What happened? How dare that asshole bring up Karloff? You think it takes talent to play Frankenstein? It's all on makeup and then grunting. Bella, I agree 100%. Now, Dracula, that's a role that requires talent. Of course. Dracula requires presence. It's all in the eyes and the voice and the head. That's right. That's right. You seem a little agitated. You want to go outside and get some air? Bullshit. I'm ready now. Roll the camera.